2: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better and you can help. We're joined today by Rick Holland, who is the Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of Strategy for Digital Shadows, a cybersecurity firm born out of former US and UK defense intelligence experts, early recognition that nation states online espionage and disinformation tradecraft would be democratized and weaponized by a much wider world of actors and motives. Rick himself began his career as an imagery intelligence analyst in the United States Army before entering the private sector. Outside of Digital Shadows, he is the co-chair of the San Cyber Threat Intelligence Summit, which groomed cybersecurity experts in some of the world's biggest companies. He's also a founding board member of the Security Advisor Alliance, a nonprofit group of security leaders from the Global 1000 who donate time each week to help peers as a pro bono service. So welcome, Rick. Thank you for joining us here at SpyCast. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, Let's start by asking you a little bit about your time in Army Intelligence. What, what drove you to go to Army Intel?
0: You know how kids these days are Harry Potter fans, right? Well, I grew up reading Tom Clancy in the 80s and, and early 90s. So I joined the Army in 93, right after Patriot Games, the movie was, I think, 92, and Sneakers was also a contemporary of that time. Yeah, that's an underrated movie that people. Don't I it should it should probably be on like top ten hacking, um, uh, intel books out there. But really, I think Tom Clancy, in all seriousness, just reading about the espionage there. Or if you think about imagery in particular, if you remember in Patriot Games, they have you know what we would do today with the Predator, yeah, um, or other other platform, right? They're doing you know satellite reconnaissance, you know real time monitoring, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. So when I went and did did the ads vab and then I went and was getting oh these are the things that you could do I was like well I want to do intelligence and I saw imagery there and I'm like oh that's what Jack Ryan does <laughs> I'm like I'm in so that's that's how I got into got into uh, Army intelligence or the oxymoron that yes. uh, I hear frequently <laughs> from my colleagues in other services so how long were you in
2: Army intelligence
0: I was in four and a half years okay.
2: And just imagery specific, or
0: well, like a lot of imagery analysts, you depending on the unit you're in, you may not actually do imagery. So, I did two years of national level imagery working Europe and North Africa, and then I did two years more of kind of like an all source, you know, generic kind of intel guy, something in North Africa in 92 and 93,
2: stuff that was going on at that time, mm-hmm. looking at East Africa and Somalia and some of the other hot spots. I mean, like both of us kind of fall in between our, our military services in the 90s, you know, yeah. where it's kind of this what the hell is the threat? What are we looking at here to where five years earlier you would have been studying Soviet army bases and tanks and 10 years later you would have been focused on Afghanistan. It was
0: like we're tweeners.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's just like, so what What was the kind of priority intelligence target at that time?
0: So we were doing a lot of Iraq stuff because when I, I was in Kuwait between the wars, so we were doing no-fly zone enforcement. Um, and interesting stuff there. Um, we did a lot of stuff with embassies in 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 uh, Africa, um, and then also we were doing, you know, I don't know, cleanup from Bosnia, Serbia um, timeframe as well. Which I know you had some time over there as well. I did it. I did it from England though. I did not deploy.
2: Well, yeah, you were more of the kind of the I four side. If I'm if my math is right.
0: Yeah, I was. I four was a customer for us, so I was yeah. in the Joint Analysis Center. Uh, near Cambridge in the UK, um, and that's where we did our work it's from. Tough posting, right? Yeah, they gave me a choice. <laughs> they said go to Korea for a year and a half, or extend for six months and do two years in the UK. And I was like, well, oh, I love I love World War II history, so I was like, send me to the UK, right. and uh, it was a great time.
2: So how how has that helped you for the job you're doing today? You're not doing overhead reconnaissance. You're not. You're doing something completely different. But has has kind of the Army Intelligence experience helped you in your kind of day-to-day today working in the private sector and on issues
0: like cyber? Yeah, it definitely helps you out with the cybers. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, been very, it's been very helpful. I think when I was an analyst at Forrester Research um, in 2012, uh, at, at Forrester, right, you, you service vendors, so cybersecurity vendors, and then Fortune 1000 Enterprises, and you're writing about spaces. And I was a new analyst, and I needed to have my little niche. Well, no one was writing about threat intelligence at the time, and I was getting these vendor briefings from very large security brands that would say these things like, we detect 50 million thousand widgets or whatever, and they were just throwing numbers, and they were calling it intelligence, and the army intel analyst in me, I was just annoyed by it. So I wrote this blog in 2012 called My Threat Intelligence Can Beat Up Your Threat Intelligence, just taking a shot at all the vendors that really had threat data that were calling it threat intelligence. and. You know, my point was you need more than data, you need analysis, you need relevancy, you need timeliness, all the attributes of, you know, actionable intelligence, which, you know, is a buzzword now. But for, you know, for the military, actionable intelligence is is very, very important in the private sector. People will joke when you say that. So my, my background there certainly helped because at that time, we didn't really have a lot of vendors in the space. EyeSight Partners was one of the few. Um, that was actually doing what I would call real threat intelligence work on the private sector side. Um, and so I was able to kind of use my experience in the military and the training I had there and my lens of the market and the vendor landscape to start writing things about, okay, this is how you actually, as a, as a consumer, as a buyer of these threat intelligence services, what you need to think about. So it was really, really, it was unique for me. I think it was at the right place at the right time because I think still – to this day, there was no industry analysts at Gartner's and Forrester's that had come out of the intelligence community. So it worked out really well for me. And then I kind of propelled myself into Digital Shadows where I work now, where we actually have intelligence offerings that we deliver for our customers.
2: Well, let me let me break the third wall for a second and, and talk directly to the listeners. If either Rick or I say the cyber at some point, it is because we, we put it into <laughs> our brains for about 10 minutes before we started this. So we apologize in advance, we're not that, yeah. Um, so let me go back and say, uh, in a, from a purely objective standpoint, ignoring everything else. This has to be a great time for cybersecurity firms. I mean, this is a topic that is in the news every single day. And at least now, people are starting to really pay attention to the threat of cyber. I mean, we're recording this the day after um, probably what will go down as a very historic summit meeting ending in in Helsinki, where uh, the president, essentially, well, he walked it back today, but yesterday he said, the hack of the DNC during the 2016 election, we don't know if it was the Russians. I don't care what the intelligence community says. Uh, They have no idea what's going on. So at least people are paying attention, right? You can't ignore this. There's something in the news every single day. Let's look broader intelligence. There's something in the news every single day. So this has to be kind of the heyday for people like you who are doing the job that you are.
0: Yeah, it's it is it's pretty exciting field. I was actually talking to an Uber driver about this on my way from Reagan to my hotel room last night. Somehow I always chat people up and we were talking about that, but if you think back probably to the first Sony breach, you were calling it then like the the golden age of cyber. Yeah. And then every year since then we've had you know, who would have thought then that we would have had Sony 2 and in North Korea and and all of those things. So, I think it's a pretty exciting time. I I don't know historically if you have so much change um and so much uh, you mentioned kind of democratization you know there's things that we can do in the private sector um now that you couldn't do even 10 years ago or if you go back to imagery i remember when the first commercial satellites came out i can't remember the name of the firm they were out of denver um but now you can go on google earth and right. you get i mean so the democratization the tools are easier um OSINT is a very very uh, you know powerful thing as we've seen a lot as well so you know, personally, it's very exciting to be in this time. It's quite chaotic. You never know what what's going to happen. But I always recommend to uh, high school students and middle school students that I work with that if you want to go into a very exciting field um, with lots of upside, um, cybersecurity is a great one to go into. It's going to tell
2: preschool students that at this point. Too. Well, I tell I mean, my, yes. my my my
0: four and six year olds <laughs> yes. they don't understand the cybers yet, but they will. We we right. do training on the cybers often. Yes, got to focus
2: on the cyber from a very early age. Because of this, though, are you worried? that events like the 2016 election or the ransomware attack on the National Health Service in Britain, or the ha- the hack of the OMB, right, you know, about 30 plus million records, including a lot of top secret ones stolen, suggests to some people that cyber defense is essentially a losing proposition, that the, the offense is so far ahead of the defense that there's really people like you don't matter all that much because we're going to get hit and we're going to we're going to lose anyway.
0: I almost think. You know for uh, people get sick of the news almost if you think about the global war on terror 20 years now and what would have been a front page story you know 15 years ago 10 years ago is kind of you know below the fold it's not as popular uh, you know I, I think there's a little bit of fatigue um in the layperson um that's out there um it's one thing after another or i think you know if i even just talk to friends that oh i got another notification from chase or from city, you know, my account got popped and and that sort of thing. So I do think there's there's some fatigue. I think people um, don't think it's nearly as significant as it is, but I don't think we should give up on it. I mean, there is the, I I actually think it's kind of a little bit of a tired adage of, you know, the the defenders have to get it right all the time. The bad guys only have to get it once. It doesn't mean we should give up. Um, That being said, it is really difficult to try to secure a modern infrastructure. You have a lot of what we would call technical debt you have all of these systems that you've inherited. You could be a bank with a mainframe system that's 25 years old. You could be some sort of oil and gas company that only refreshes hardware every 20 years, right? So you've inherited these things that were by design not secure. But by no way should we give up on trying to protect ourselves. Um, I think that's really, really important. But we also have to be careful of crying woof for the public. So uh,
2: that's an interesting concept. Are we at the point now where we kind of have to focus on resource allocation? We got to say it's very, very difficult to keep people out. Should we be focusing our limited resources on mitigation of damage versus creating a impervious wall on the outside? I mean, is that where a lot of firms are now focusing on? Hey, look, there's going to be a zero day somewhere. There's going to be a way in our, our infrastructure is too old. But let's protect stuff on the inside. I mean, in military terms, we talk about this is defense in depth, right? To the idea of They're gonna break through the outer wall, but can we protect the really important information using other means?
0: It's a really good question. I think the challenge we have is the wall is wherever I'm at, right? Because there is no perimeter anymore. Wherever the user, the consumer is at is really their little perimeter of themselves. Um, I I use a joke term um, instead of defense in depth, I call it expense in depth (laughs) because oftentimes people are just buying more and more crap. They're buying the latest widget from a vendor where I always suggest when I talk to, to, to leaders that are in my customers, or when I was at Forrester and I was working with security leaders is, we gotta take a step back and understand what the, you mentioned crown jewels, what are the crown jewels? I don't think organizations have enough situational awareness into what their people are doing, where their intellectual property sits, and then really build their plan around that. You can't give up on prevention completely, because if you think of it as a funnel, you need prevention to block a bunch of the commodity stuff, right, because you have limited resources, limited staff, um, so you want to get that out of there, dump it so that your team and your tech stack is looking at what's most important to your organization. So there's kind of been the soup de jour is like, oh, it's all about detection and response. Really, it's prevention first. And then what comes in the funnel is what you try to do the detection and response on. But really, I think it's about situational awareness. I mean, We really can't just sit back because as we get better, so do they. I mean, I guess by
2: definition, these are generally smart people who are trying to get into our systems. I mean, you, you don't. It's not like a bank robbery where you can have an IQ of 12 and then walk in there with a gun. You actually have to have a little bit going on between the ears. And are they adapting as quickly to us as we are to them? Is this is this essentially uh, the, the better we get at defense, the better they get at offense? Kind of looking at almost the BMD arms race or, or any kind of a kind of military arms race where you look at this pendulum swinging back and forth power between the attacker and the
0: defender. I, I think they probably get better... Fa- Faster than we do. In some cases, they don't have to get better because we're so bad um, because we don't have situational awareness. We don't know where our important data is at, our high-value targets there. So, you know, the barrier to entry for them is very low. And the tools and and the access level, because that barrier is so low, is, you know, there's a term called skids, script kiddies, right? You get a, a tool that can be very powerful to compromise an organization or you get a, a tool that you can launch denial of service attacks to take down our banking websites that's very easy for someone to get you know back in the day it would require some development skills to do that so you have these tools that go out there Um, if you look at shadow brokers as an example right releasing nsa tools now nsa tools have been released to the public so you have a very powerful tool set or we could say alleged nsa tools i guess released to the public you had um, a company called hacking team um, that lost some of their tools and they were released to the to the public so that barrier to entry is there. You have these very powerful tools that people with less capable skills have access to. So that also makes the defender's job very difficult. Well, and it
2: seems according to some of the research that you've done that these hackers are actually organizing themselves in many respects. It's an article that you were involved in that, uh, so there's actually schools out there, online courses, just like you would do a a correspondence course for learning Spanish that actually have lectures and you can chat with the professors and, and the instructors about how to do in this case credit card hackings and other things like that. I mean, is that terrifying or there, It used to be like the lone, the whole, I you kind know, of the the hypocritical four hundred pound guy sitting in his mom's basement covered in Cheeto dust. Now you have organized schools and even things like um, recruiting online that reads like almost a normal job posting. You know, kind of looking for energetic people who are willing to learn. It, it's almost like you know we do ZipRecruiter ads and stuff on the on here that. Like every other kind of job out there that's organized, but it's completely illegal uh, and it's coming from all over the world.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, the parallels between the private or commercial sector and cybercrime, in particular there, it could be the same thing because ultimately it's about making money, right? Um, it's, it, it, we can get into this maybe later. We can talk about OPSEC a little bit, but there's kind of a trade off. Everyone's like, oh, this stupid hacker they or this super stupid criminal made a mistake. Oftentimes they make a mistake, but the, the criminals have to reach their buyers, right? So you can only have so much OPSEC there, otherwise you can't sell and make money. Uh, so it stands to reason that, hey, if we want to make money, we want to recruit people, we want to train people up. Oftentimes you have a crew and you get a percentage of a cut of, of some, you know, it's like any heist movie, right? Whatever the person that runs it does it. So yeah, it is very, very parallel. And and what I would say, uh, for people looking for jobs, um, in the corporate sector, private sector, oftentimes, they don't allow remote workers in the cyber criminal world, remote work is very much encouraged. So That is one of the perks in that, uh, in that model.
2: There's not a lot of physical infrastructure for meetings. That's a, as a terrorist learn, that's a good way to go out of business quickly. Um, Are we only hearing in the news about the stupid hackers that are getting caught? I mean, are there really good ones? Like, you know, think about intelligence, right? You only hear about the mistakes and the failures, the the good operations we'll never know about. Is that the same in the hacking world?
0: I would say it absolutely is. And part of it is the way that regulatory bodies act or don't act because there is no requirement for many industries to do disclosure when you have an intrusion. Now, uh, the GDPR in Europe, uh, so the data privacy, regulation that's come up requires notification within 48 hours to the regulatory body when you have that. Um, So if you have EU citizen data, if any of our listeners have EU citizens in their their organizations, they're probably aware of this. Um, But once you get outside of that, um, the credit card industry has some requirements. Healthcare with HIPAA high tech has some requirements. But if it's an intellectual property loss uh, and it's not a consumer or an employee, I, I, I don't know what that number would be, but I would say you, you probably don't even hear about less than a third of what actually happens because there is no requirement to mandate. And oftentimes, if I'm going to give up that I lost intellectual property to my widget that's going to generate 30% of my revenue for the next five years, you don't want that to become public. So, right. yeah, I would say there's lots going on that we never hear about.
2: I'm going to talk a little bit later about how much do we learn from other attacks. I'm going to get very specific about that, but let me redirect a little bit. The same basic idea is. Is there a, and others have told me this before, I wanna get your your view on it, is there a aversion to a public-private partnership on this? Is there an aversion to companies working with the federal government, with NSA, with Cybercom, with some of these different organizations because of that fear of intellectual property or being found out for a big breach or a big hack, destroying stock prices or anything else? I mean, is that a huge barrier to preventing this from happening because you can't bring in the full resources of either the private community but also the U.S. government?
0: I, I definitely think there there is. If you look in the traditional hacker community, which obviously a lot of the cybersecurity staff may have a traditional hacking background, there's already an aversion to law enforcement, government agencies of, of anyway. So a lot of the, the teams out there will have maybe like this innate, you know, desire to not cooperate uh, there as well. And then I think if you look at the Snowden leaks as an example, or any of the government leaks that are out there, then that also builds it. So you have a, 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 a subculture within the cybersecurity space where people have that. Um, but then you also have there are examples, um, uh, especially with some of the large banks that have been working through an organization called the FSISAC with with, with the U.S. government and in sharing information. I, I think another barrier is um, skepticism of the value of what you will get. Um, you know, having worked with classification. Or you could say lack uh, lack of declassification. You know, by the time something can get declassified, it could be very stale for you know an operational security team in a Fortune 500. So I think there's a little bit of you know I am going to get some data, but is it even going to be valid to me? Right. Um, or maybe I can't get people cleared on my team, and so I may not be able to get you know read on for a particular brief on a threat actor and things like that. So I don't think we should give up on it by any means, but I definitely think the cards are stacked for many organizations. Both with that kind of aversion to trusting, and there's also legal liability. In fact, at the at the Sand Cyber Threat Intelligence Summit that I ran um, up in Maryland in February, we had a lawyer um, that presented, and he basically talked about some of the legal pitfalls of if you're sharing information with the government, um, and what kind of liabilities you might have to your business. So there, you know, business gets into the mix as well.
2: Well, I mean, that can be the decisions to share this kind of information would have to be at the very high executive level, CEOs and other executives. How how aware are CEOs and others at that level uh, with this threat of this world? I mean, you look at members of Congress and <laughs> they're not, right? So these That's are That's an understatement right, too, right? Right. I'm trying to be nice. Uh, the vast majority of them don't have a clue. They are the ones using like the cyber and you know come from Zoolander it's in the computer how you can't really be a CEO of a major company today and not have at least a basic understanding of this world but then again you every so often will have a company caught with their pants down you're like how did they not at least try to do something to prevent this from happening I mean I know that's a lot of what the company does that you work for I know that's a lot of what you know and it's kind of the private sector uh cybersecurity people are focused on but how much has it reached the top echelons of these companies?
0: Well, it can reach them quite painfully when they get a letter from the FBI or Secret Service talking about IP addresses beaconing out to other countries. So oftentimes that will be kind of the awakening um, that companies have. Um, But beyond that kind of painful enlightenment, um, quite painful enlightenment for many organizations, uh, the boards, you know, it kind of depends on the sector that you're in. Because you have a wide range. If you if you come from someone that is in a technology sector, and you have technology savvy board members, you may be more of aware of the threat. If you came from a home builder, as an example, probably way less likely of the threat that's that's out there. So it kind of depends on the sector and the members of of, of boards. One of the trends that we're seeing—it's it's not new now. It's been going on for several years though—is to bring in kind of like an outside advisor to the board to say, here's here's the three things that you need to be doing and asking your CIO, your, your chief information security officer about cybersecurity. You know, Do you have a framework that you're using? Are you tracking against that framework? How quickly can you detect an adversary in your environment? Things like that. So it, it's definitely a board-level conversation, um, but just because something's a board-level conversation doesn't mean it necessarily gets the prioritization and the organization, because in a lot of times, the organizational inertia against it is quite difficult to overcome. So it's getting better, uh, but it's definitely uh, not moving quick enough.
2: Well, I mean, the trick the trick, I think, is a lot the same way as if if I sit down with a member of the military or former member of the military and then a third person at the table is someone who's never served. I can have a conversation with a former member of the military using essentially all acronyms (laughs) and completely leave that third person out. There's so many acronyms in this world as well. well. and there's a lot of just buzzwords, right? Whether it's talking about like advanced persistent threats and the dark web and all these things that we're becoming as a society more and more educated about. Uh, but it really, you have to be an expert to understand all of this. Is there a divide between those who know and those who don't? I mean, I like to think of myself as somewhere in the middle of that. I don't have enough time to learn every buzzword and every little thing about it, but I certainly know more than an average person. Is that divide problematic? Is that where we're putting too much faith in this? Maybe I'm asking the wrong person. This question Because you're this person are we putting too much faith in experts to come in and save the day when the focus should be educating everyone to try to bring us up to this level to where we're all at least literate in this world versus being like, oh, CIO, come save us because I think it's the cyber and not actually know what the hell I'm talking about.
0: Well, I actually would say in many cases, the experts, the security leadership have made this divide worse. Um, If you look back, if people still do this, what they're reporting up to the board, I often make an analogy where the CISO's dream is to finally present to the board, and it's kind of like you're in, in, in AAA, right? And you get called up to the big leagues, and you present to the board for the first time. You've been waiting for this moment for two years. Average lifespan of a chief information security officer is around two years. So you've been waiting for this opportunity. You finally get up to the big leagues, and then you strike out. And you strike out in, in, in a wonderfully terrible fashion. You talk about vulnerability accounts and APT groups and, and all of these terms, these acronyms that we use in the cybersecurity domain that your board has no clue on, that your leadership has no clue on, do you think they're ever going to have you come back again? Right. You didn't tie it to the business. You didn't tie it to how we make revenue. If you're if you're an agency, you didn't tie it to the mission. So we have this historical legacy of communicating with the business in the wrong way. Um, and so oftentimes there's a thought that if the CISO is going to talk to me at all, something bad has happened. People need to get more proactive and actually tell wins, like how did we protect this widget's project launch? How did we keep our website up? on Amazon day and not have it go down for an hour and a half and cost us millions of dollars worth of revenue. You know, talk about the wins that are out there. So we've made the divide, the divide that's already there, us on the security practitioner side, we've made it worse.
1: We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscalercom AI.
2: Let me ask you: Should CISOs be operating essentially as an op for, as a, almost a red team? And I don't think that is. I mean old school military red team the bad guys i mean should it be like the ntc for corporate america or are you the krasnovian <laughs> should you really looking at your organization as how would i attack this and figuring out that's
0: where the vulnerabilities are so speaking of two army guys using acronyms <laughs> i know exactly what your question is because of ntc um yes absolutely but i think the pragmatic piece is if you look at the have-nots, which is probably 80% of the organizations across the world, you know, they're struggling to find even low-level talent, much less people that you – know, l- large financial institutions actually will have red teams, right? And they're looking at, here's our payment gateway. How could people compromise that? How could people go after the crown jewels that are out there? So there's this really big divide on those that have the resources to do that versus those that don't. Now, just because you don't have the resources doesn't mean you shouldn't. I mean, you can track how your peer organizations are being targeted and take that into your threat model. Uh, I, I think threat modeling is something in, in, in our world, in the cybersecurity world, that's not done enough. Um, sometimes people that develop code will think about threat models specific to their code, but we don't think about our overall threat model. Threat model being insiders. Um, maybe it's a hacktivist that's going to try to take my website down because I'm associated with... Uh, some kind of agriculture company that's out there. Um, I think oftentimes because some of the headlines, you might think one of the APT groups um, is in my threat model because it's on the headlines. For m- many organizations, are unlikely to be targeted by a nation state, but I think a lot of times, especially on boards, if you've got their interests, they're like, "Oh, who's get- China's getting us? China's getting us. Russia's getting us. Whoever." When reality, maybe a malicious insider is their main threat in their threat model. So we should be doing more threat modeling. Um, is just challenging for less resourced organizations.
2: Let me ask you about the dark web, because I think that you know we hear a lot about this, again, as someone kind of in the middle of this, I know a bit, but for those who don't, uh, and, and even if you do know a little bit about this, my question's kind of specific to the point of, how much are we now forced to go way beyond what we would have five years ago and kind of understanding our threats? Because essentially this is an entire new universe of threats that it's much more difficult to track uh and it there's much more capability on this side and talk about selling capability or teaching
0: capability or all these things it's essentially a free-for-all yeah i like to call the dark web the derp web because it gets so much attention and yeah. hype from the media and even when i was an analyst at Forrester, i would get iceberged to death every vendor would show a picture of the iceberg and underneath it is the dark web and all this mysterious things Happen there, um, and there's a there's actually a lot of good that happens on the dark web as well. You know, activists are using Tor in in regions to do things that may be illegal, but they're not unethical. So I always like to preface any dark web conversation with there are some good things that happen there, but certainly it's a bastion for bad stuff as well. Um, I think people need to think about it. Um, you know, you're using typically I would say using Tor as a browser. You know, something other than your your regular web right. browser to access these sites, you can buy goods, but I think organizations that mostly need to be concerned about the dark web typically are financial institutions where people are going after your and I, uh, credit card, um, retail organizations where you're selling my login to Apple or iCloud, that sort of thing. So I, I don't think everyone needs to be concerned about the dark web. Not every person is, has their data being s- uh, stole. There it is something you need to consider in your threat model, but it really, really gets overhyped.
2: Well, I think like any technology is dual use, right? It wasn't designed to be just for bad guys. It right. was designed for people in Iran to speak out against the government or Russia and not be killed or go to prison. Um, let, me, let me ask you a broad question. And I think this is important for uh, understanding this from kind of an intelligence perspective. I mean, if you look back at a intelligence analysis, which you, you're a veteran of. Uh, a lot of it is learning from the past. A lot of it is, you know, CIA has studies in intelligence so that their current analysts and their current operations people can read about what their predecessors did years or centuries centuries, decades ago. How much do we learn from other attacks? I, I think you did a blog post on the the release of the Verizon, Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report of the DBIR, which comes out every, year. I guess it's the 11th year this has now come out. And you know, it's kind of this great compilation of all this information being brought together in one place. Can we learn from the way other companies did things right and other companies did things wrong? Uh, is there too much mirror imaging involved in that and kind of over processing of we're just like them? Uh, is there a threat that we don't evolve if we look back at the past and try to fight the next cyber war based on the last one? There's a lot of questions I'm throwing at you. Sure. Basically the bigger broader question is, How much can we learn from looking at what's going on around us?
0: I would start off first by saying we should look at what's happening within us. That sounds weird. We should look at what's happening in our own organization, because oftentimes you will go out to third parties. But after action review is a term that I have kept from the military. And even in my role in in defending Digital Shadows Network, we do an after action review every time we have a security incident what lessons have we learned from this? How can we apply it to the next one? I see many organizations that aren't actually effectively capturing what can we learn that's happened to us because you don't get anything more relevant than what's actually happening in your environment, how adversaries, be it an internal employee or an external cyber criminal or hacktivist are targeting you. So that's kind of step one is that we actually have to capture and learn from our own environments because there's nothing more relevant than that. Um, I do think you know, one of the questions that CISOs always want—they want to compare themselves to other verticals—and I think your your mirror imaging one is is it is a fair analogy there. I think as a data point, what's happening there doesn't mean the exact same thing is going to happen to me, but it can be very helpful for building out that threat model that we talked about. I do highly recommend the Verizon data breach investigations report. If if, if there's one annual cybersecurity report that's out there, it's 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 the best one to read.
2: Let me ask you about this. You you know, in the world of pop culture, if there's a breach, the, the IT guys are going as fast as they can to kind of close the breach and figure out who it is. One of the interesting things that you point out in the, most, the latest DBIR is that almost 70% of breaches took months or longer to detect, right? So someone was just sitting inside there grabbing your information and I, I automatically think back to the DNC where it was a year, one of the organizations that hacked the DNC was in there for a year and you emphasize the idea that you'd much rather make sure you get it right than get it done quickly. Is there, is there too much emphasis on shut it down, close it down, let's figure out who this is, let's act quickly, and not enough on let's take a step back and do it right? Now, are, that's part one of my question. Part two, are there certain companies that can't afford to take the time and they have to act very quickly?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I had a personal experience with this at a university I worked um, where we had an intrusion. It, it turned out to be one that we had to, to notif- do a notification on. We had a requirement to do a notification because student data was in the mix. And I remember having conversation with executive leadership to say, we needed to let the adversary persist in the environment. Um, you, you can imagine scenarios where if you think about collection and intelligence collection, you have a single source of collection. And if you make a change and the adversary adapts, you might lose that visibility. Um, so even when it comes to eradication of, of an adversary from your environment, you want to make sure you have a lot of different perspectives on their activity so that you, you, you are confident that when you flip the switch, it's not that simple necessarily, but and you begin your, your eradication efforts that you will actually get them out of the environment. So I guess the first part there is, you know, when the adversary is just chilling on your environment and listening, you know, the, the urgency is certainly there but you you don't want to shoot yourselves in the foot you especially don't want to lose forensic evidence that might be there if you make some change you lose a, the ability to collect on someone that could make uh you know what could be a, a couple month investigation you know ongoing for years but it's really an organizational level discussion it's why when we were at Forrester, we had a report called planning for failure and you talk about doing after action reviews and then learning from it you know you need to have a plan in place the first time you get a notice from the fbi that there's an intruder in your environment and then you want to get, them, get rid of them, get rid of them, you need to have a, a, a total picture. No, you'll never have a total picture. Yeah. But you want to have good situational awareness so you can make the right decisions. But you want to do that in advance. It's not when you get that letter that you're suddenly trying to figure out how you're going to respond, what you're going to do. You're in bad shape.
2: It, it, it almost seems maybe this analogy is wrong. Maybe it's right. Like a traditional counterintelligence investigation where you know you got a bad guy. You could round them up anytime that you want to, but you want to sit back and see who they talk to and who they're you know, what information they're picking up. I mean, whether it's the Russian 10 in 2010 at Chapman and Crew or two days ago when we arrested a woman here in Washington, D.C. who had been, yep, the NRA lady, who had been, we, the FBI had been tracking her for quite some time, and it wasn't until she started packing up the leave that they decided to grab her. Are, are, is that a bad analogy or a kind of a relatively workable analogy
0: in this case to where you're, you kind of sit and wait until you have to? I think it's a good analogy, but I have a caveat to it, meaning what if you're in a scenario where you didn't have teams that could follow and surveil them? Uh, you didn't have multiple collection capabilities that are out there because if you look at the state of situational awareness within you know, corporations today, it's pretty weak. So you don't have those capabilities where you could do that. Um, if you do have good collection and you have good visibility into the internal environment, you have good visibility to the privileged accounts that people use because that's what the bad guys go after. They want the administrators and things like that. Then you can more confidently say, "I want to let this adversary persist. I have a I have a line in the sand. You know, if they get close to, you know, the, these servers that have this data on it, you know, we're we're going to cut them down. Or we're going to begin the er- eradication of their implants or their malware that's out there. But really, it comes down to how good of visibility do you have into the footprint of the adversary in your environment?
2: Well, let me ask you that question. I mean, you know, how advanced have we gotten in digital forensics? That side of knowing what people are doing, where they are. I mean. For the most, most of the general public, when you're saying you're gonna watch them and you've got a line and these things, like that's all just looking at code and kind of, you know, there, there's no inside the matrix here, right? You're not physically inside this infrastructure. How, how far have we advanced? Are we ahead, meaning the defenders, are we ahead in that digital forensic side of knowing how to figure out who people are, uh, knowing s- similarly to how we do physical forensics You know and now we can basically you commit a crime there's a pretty good chance we're going to figure out it's you is that the same in the cyber
0: world now i think the technology is there so we have things that we can deploy to laptops and workstations and the servers we have visibility onto the network but it's really comes down to how scalable is that technology to deploy and if, if you imagine a a large banking institution they've grown from mergers and acquisitions they're Mega bank may actually be made of four very large banks, all with disparate, informa- uh, uh, disparate infrastructure and things like that. So I feel pretty good about the tech being there. Um, so the tech's there. Having people that can interpret those results and actually do the forensic, there's a gap there. Um, so you have the internal people problem. And Then if you look at the service providers out there that will do this as a service, you know, it can be challenging for them to even have a pipeline of students I mean, you really do have to go to preschool to, to start up your pipe, like for real, um, start getting people into to STEM programs and things like that. So again, like many things, it's not purely a tech problem. There's the people in the process that and the complexity of these modern environments that makes it difficult.
2: How, how far back would it be worth looking at the DBIRs? Do you ever go back to the first couple of DBIRs and see how things have evolved? If we've collectively gotten any better at fighting this, or maybe if some predictions were correct or bad or anything. I mean, kind of, I think back about looking at some, m- one of my favorite possessions is I have a uh, European history book from 1914. And so reading it and just knowing that a month after this was published, the world was going to explode. That's cool. It's kind of a fun way- I mean, it really gruesomely fun, but that's my personality. Do you go back right before Stuxnet or right before some of these major like NHS and look at the DBIR from that time and see, boy, were we kind of naive or we started to see this
0: happening. What's interesting because we don't really do forecasts in the private sector. If you look at the DBIR, it's a look back that's out there now for this one. I actually did this exercise because I had the same thought. I I, I wondered because phishing and even if you look at the the DNC hack and Podesta, Phishing was a component of that, right? So it's a it's a safe bet to say every single intrusion is phishing. Maybe not every single time they get access to your environment is phishing, but a lot of them. And if you go back, my my question is, we really haven't gotten that much better at solving the phishing problem going back to the early days of the DBIR uh, because it was there as well. So yeah, it is an interesting exercise. You know, despite new vendors, new capabilities, you know, humans are still the weakest link. And you'll actually have hubris in the cybersecurity community about oh. I could never be fished. I would never click on that. I've got examples of websites that it's the legit website and a 100% fake website it looks exactly the same. You'd have to look at the code on the back end to know that it was, that it was you know, trying to capture my credentials. So it's, it's really easy to say phishing emails that link back to web pages. It's not like the days of Nigerian email scams where it was quite, quite easy. So phishing still, decade later, is still one of the biggest attack vectors for the adversaries to get into our environments.
2: So what, what do companies do if they don't have, if they're small, if they don't have the, the kind of financial capability of having an entire department or even like red teams or anybody else, and they, they realize that they don't have a ton of resources to spend on this because there are some that are just kind of making ends meet already. And it's almost like the old adage, of if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you, you break a knee or something like that, you're immediately in bankruptcy. A lot of these companies might be working month to month. And if they have a major cyber attack, that's the end for them. So how do they make the decision, the cost benefit analysis of using the resources, the very little resources they have to prevent disaster? Because they almost have to at this point, wouldn't you think?
0: It's a really great question. It's a tough question, too, uh, when you look at budgets or even I look at my own budget. Um, you know, every organization is budget constrained. Even if you're a Fortune 10 bank, you always want more budget. Um, you know, I think for small organizations, probably two routes that are good to go um, that I would recommend. One is cyber insurance policies. Um, cyber insurance isn't going to save you if your intellectual property uh, is, is stolen. In fact, we just saw um, fines going out against a Chinese um, electric uh, energy, or, or um, what's in it, Cinoval was their name, uh, that stole IP from a U.S. company that just has got some fines um, just in the last week there. But if you're in those fines relative to the business, they lost immaterial. So uh, insurance policy is not going to save your bacon uh, if if your IP is uh, stolen. However, an insurance policy could cover your cost to bring in an incident response firm uh, to do analysis of what's happened. It could cover your cost from a breach notification perspective. So that's one route. Uh, Of course, insurance doesn't take away the hit to your brand. I think the other piece where most organizations will go to is they go to managed services of some sort. So they'll use a provider that's gonna run maybe their IT stack, and they get security services as a component of it, because they certainly can't afford to do it in-house.
2: I mean, I think of companies kind of coming together. I mean, corporations were essentially designed for bringing together groups of people to work as one to do some kind of product or something. I mean, going back, like, we're talking now hundreds of years ago. Do you see any movement towards kind of vertical or horizontal integration of companies in the same kind of business or along the same kind of uh, economic path coming together to bring on a kind of contract cyber firm or I mean, I think like Washington DC, let's say the spy museum is too small independently to have its own massive cyber secure. We have good IT guys, but if someone came after us, we would probably I mean the Russians came, we'd be in trouble. No, offense. if the Russians to our... come for anyone, right. you're going to be in trouble, right? So maybe one day the Spy Museum and the New and the Bible Museum and the Smithsonian all say, you know what? Let's gear up and team up and, cre- and create our kind of Washington, D.C. Museum cyber firm. Do you see any of that happening in the corporate world or did I just come up with a billion dollar idea?
0: <laughs> no, I think it's a good idea. You see it in the government. Yeah, you know, right. I, I worked in university and University of Texas system. Yep would band together and you get the power of procurement as well right because you're buying a whole lot more than you would as an individual i haven't seen it in the private sector it may be going on and i just don't have visibility into it but definitely similar threat models it, it might work better if if you're nonprofits and you're not competing because i think the competition aspect right. um can be a challenge there now that being said when it comes to intelligence still one of the primary ways that people share is you know over beers or calling people up on the phone to say hey We have an intrusion. Here's what we're seeing. What are you seeing? So you still see that type of um, sharing going on across, you know, private industries, even competitors. I think what you'll see in a lot of the Intel shops, first of all, to have an Intel shop, you you have to be a large company anyway, right? right? But Intel shops are are willing to share information because they know it's going to, you know, raise the uh, raise the the bar for everyone.
2: So let me let me wrap this conversation up with this question. (laughs) And it's, uh, what are we looking at in five years? Like, where where are we? Have have the defenders caught up? Are we gonna get a, I mean, this is somewhat over the top but people have talked about the 2016 election as being the cyber Pearl Harbor. I don't think it is. Are we on pace for a cyber Pearl Harbor? I don't mean everybody dying. I mean, something that the whole world stops and says, oh crap, we've crossed the threshold. I mean, Stuxnet was possibly one of those, right? Where you have physical damage from some kind of a cyber attack. Are we looking in the next five years or where there will be some kind of massive oh shit moment that everyone kind of opens their eyes and starts paying attention?
0: You know, I think we've had oh shit moments for years. I mean, you think about Leon Panetta talking about the Cyber Pearl um, Harbor um, back, in, back in his time. Uh, so it's interesting. I, I, sometimes I feel like we have this kind of Kardashian memory and we kind of forget things so quickly as a culture. I think until you have significant loss of life, you know, we still remember 9-11, right? That's still, you know, and, and that was t- not 20 years ago yet, but, you know, we're approaching that. So, you know, I think that's what it takes for a, quote, air quote, you know, real cyber Pearl right. Harbor there. I think when you look five years into the future, you know, I think organizations are going to be using a lot more cloud services, which is going to be good for many small organizations, to go back to your question, because... Now we're going to be leveraging the bigs that are out there to help provide a security in a way that we could never do it. I'm going to use Office, uh, Microsoft, Office, uh, Microsoft Office 365 to do my email. It's going to protect me there. Um, so I think you're going to see more and more of that. Uh, I think the challenges are going to be, you know, we're going to be even more remote. We're going to even be more distributed. You know, our challenges aren't going to go away. And the adversaries, again, I think are going to still continue to have the advantage five years from now. Well,
2: Rick Holland is the Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of Strategy for Digital Shadows. He's a former Army Intel guy, and so we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here today, Rick. Uh, we're going to have you back in five years, and we can have this conversation. <laughs> we can revisit. We can revisit and go from there. I really appreciate your time today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. And if anyone is on the Twitters, um, I'm Rick H. Holland uh, is my handle. Lots of good information about the cyber.
2: The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.
1: Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey, and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.